it's a it's a family thing as well. I see a lot of families bringing their their kids into the shop and and getting them first rod or taking that first fly fishing 101 class with us, which I think is awesome. I honestly I wish I'd started fly fishing 20 years before I did, but um, I think that's a great thing. And I think now we have such good quality gear. Now, when I when I started fly fishing about 20 years ago, there weren't a whole lot of women's waders and boots. So I'd have to get like a men's small or medium and just try to make it kind of fit. Same with, um, you know, like wading jackets and gloves and that kind of thing. And and I think it's really neat to see the fact that the industry is, is going, well, you know, hey, we can't make cookie cutter women's things just like the men's because they're not, gonna, they're not shaped the same. They're not going to fit the same way. I think that's a really cool advancement that we've made and, and it's just getting better all the time. You know, just the gear itself, you were saying that, you know, the rods are lighter, you know, everything is, is more technical and, and I think it's more durable too, which is another great thing. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Fly Crate. Get double the flies when you join their monthly fly club for a fun way to learn fly fishing and discover new flies each month. Just use the code DOUBLETHEFLIES at checkout or stock up on flies for your next trip and get free shipping on all orders of $15 or more. Go to www.theflycrate.com to adventure by the fly. We're excited to have on the program this time around Leslie Heron Allen. Now, Leslie's out of Memphis, Tennessee, works as a fly fishing manager with Orvis, avid fly tire, avid fly fisher, kayaker, and I'm told ruler of the kitchen. We'll find out what that means. Leslie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Okay, before we get into this, what's this ruler of the kitchen? I need to know, and we'll talk all about Memphis and and your fly fishing story. We'll get into that. But what's this ruler of the kitchen business? Sure. Well, um, my husband and I are both avid cooks. We both enjoy making, you know, all kinds of different dishes, anything from, from good old Southern home cooking like grandma would make to, you know, fancy stuff. Um, but Typically, I rule the kitchen. I kind of kind of keep us on track with with what we're making and and taking care of the leftovers and cleaning up because I'm a big advocate about cleaning as I go while I cook. I hate to have a big pile of dishes at the end of the night and have to take care of all that before I go to bed. So I kind of put my foot down and keep everything on track. <laughs> so let's let's talk about first off. Let's let's talk about Tennessee. Let's talk about Memphis. You. I, we were talking briefly before we, we got going here, and you're saying you're basically born and bred. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've been in Tennessee almost all my life. Um, I grew up fishing small ponds and, and lakes and rivers close by here, um, all freshwater stuff. And like like every southern kid, I started with a cane pole, a cricket, and a bobber catching panfish. Mm-hmm. And now I've kind of evolved into fly fishing, and I rarely pick up a spinning rod these days. Maybe once or twice a year um, with friends, but if it has fins, I'm going to throw a fly at it. I love it. 
I'm really curious how 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 you made that transition because it, it always seems to be a tipping point there where you know you've been working a spinning rod or doing other types of fishing and then or bass fishing whatever whatever it is you've been up to and then at some point or another fly fishing seems to take over as an obsession for a lot of people is that is that the way it went down for you absolutely um chris and i before we were married we were still dating and the ducks unlimited group had a big outdoors festival here in memphis for years and he and i went and mid-south fly fishers had a group and i had i had dabbled in fly fishing and he had fly fished some as a child with his dad and uncle and we ran into the Mid-South Fly Fishers booth and they were like, oh yeah, you know, we've got a, an introduction to fly fishing class coming up and we teach fly tying classes. And that was something that kind of intrigued me. So we ended up going to one of their classes and the rest is kind of history. I started tying flies about six months later, um, really got into it and, and just kind of gave up the whole spin fishing thing because I just... I became so absorbed with fly fishing. That's all I wanted to learn and all I wanted to do. And I wanted to be successful at it. So I just kind of, no pun intended, just kind of dove in head first and, and never stopped. How important was it to you to have Chris going, kind of learning at the same time? Did you guys kind of, um, you know, learn from each other at the same time? I'd speak to that a little bit. That would be a really interesting process, I would, I would imagine. Well, that that's kind of a funny story in itself. Um, Chris could never really teach me how to cast. I, you know, he's taught me other things, and and I did, I, you know, like becoming a better shooter. We do, we do a little bit of skeet shooting and that kind of thing. And he's great at that, and he's an awesome fly caster. But as far as him teaching me he would get frustrated with me and I would just get frustrated with him trying to teach me. And I ended up actually having a couple of guys in the fly fishing club help me work on my cast. And it took me forever to learn how to cast because I had been spin fishing so much and I was just using my wrist too much. And it, you know, my cast was horrible for a long time. And then one of the guys in the club, actually a good friend of mine, his name is Rob Pritula. He lives in East Tennessee now. But Rob went out with me one afternoon, and he's like, Leslie, you can do this. Just close your eyes and stop trying to force the rod. Let the rod do the work for you and relax. Hmm. And I just started casting, and, and I wasn't trying to use too much wrist. And, you know, just Rob's encouragement was, was pretty awesome. And and I, I do still take some casting lessons. I've been fly fishing for almost 20 years now and every other year or so I'll take a casting lesson from somebody because I do pick up bad habits and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, it, it was just a lot of practice and, you know, having the right person put the right words in my ears to make me understand what I was doing wrong. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I wish, I wish I had somebody talking in my ear when I was learning to cast because I've developed a lot of bad habits and I know that, the line gets out there. So at the end of the day, um, but I, I ran into a fellow who was like in the, in the world fly casting championships or something. And he was telling, he looked at my cast and he's like, Oh man, <laughs> we, got, 
we got some work to do here. But um, it's yeah. it's it's kind of refreshing to hear somebody say that they'll do that once in a while, go back because we do develop bad habits. I know my my elbow always wants to come off my body, and 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 then you start working too hard. Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of people try to overpower the rod. Hmm. You know, and instead of letting that rod do the work for you, you try to make the rod work, and and you have to you have to kind of slow down a little bit and feel that rod flex and let it do its job. Um, like I know when I teach people a lot, you know, and I say, I say it's not, you know, when I teach my classes at Orvis, I'm like, you know, it's not a power thing. It's a timing thing. And you don't have to be big and strong to make a beautiful fly cast. You have, you just have to have the correct timing. And a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy, but once they kind of figure that out and figure out that it's timing, right. they're like, hey, that really is easier than it looks. I'm like, yeah, you know, just slow down a little and let the rod do the work for you. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. well put because it's the waiting. It's the waiting for the line to to basically coil behind you. Because I find just watching new new people to the sport, a lot of times they're trying to overwork it. It's like they're, they're going way too fast and not waiting for the line to load behind them. Right. It's the buggy whip syndrome. They think they have to whip the, the rod back and forth like a buggy whip to make the line actually make the loops. But that's that's really kind of backwards, you know. Um, and I think sometimes it's cool to actually take your phone and video people casting because you can kind of help them tweak the little mistakes that they're making by doing that as well. And they see, you know, that they're stopping the rod tip too far back or or kind of kind of fading and making tailing loops when they see what they're doing on on video they're like oh wow now i see what i was doing wrong i i understand what you're saying about correcting that problem you know makes a big difference when you're teaching leslie and you're a fly casting uh, classes with orvis what's a common misconception or question that you get from people is there some common denominators um I think the, one of the common misconceptions is that you have to work the rod like a buggy whip. You know, they, they watch people on TV um, doing a lot of a lot of false casting, mm-hmm. and they think that that's what they're supposed to do before, you know, they actually stop the cast and let the fly or let the end of the line fall. They think they have to keep it in the air a lot. And, I, you know, I'm like, no. I'm like, really, you can just make a single cast, mm-hmm. you know, and go from there. That's one of the big misconceptions. And the other one is probably that, you know, that they're using their wrist. And I'm like, no, it's not, you know, it's not wrist. It's all forearm and shoulder. And, you know, and trying to to, to break the habit of, of cocking your wrist when you make a fly cast is really hard for people that have been spin fishing all their lives because it's almost totally opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. How long have you been with Orvis? Yeah, I have been with Orvis for three years now. I actually had my third year anniversary last week, and uh, it's, it seems like I've been there a, a lot longer than that. I'm just really comfortable there, and it's just a really cool place to work. I've got some great coworkers. My boss is awesome. You know, I can, can take off basically whenever I want to and fish, which is amazing. Yeah, it's just a cool place. Yeah, and you know, that that's something I like to talk about on the program a lot because it, to have a place like an Orvis shop, and I know you guys are in Memphis, Tennessee, but wherever you happen to be at, just somewhere to go and talk fishing, just get the stories, get the lay of the land. It's it's 
for me, it's really inspiring when I go into a brick and mortar store and, and, and see what's going on. And I think that's for a, for a lot of people that what keeps the obsession kind of current. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I really try to encourage our customers after a trip to come back. And I'm like, I always joke with them. I'm like, okay, when you get back, you got to bring me the big fish picture. You know, and I, I have guys come in the store and go, oh, Leslie, look what I caught on my vacation. You know, and I think that's really cool. I don't feel like I'm just trying to sell them stuff and push push them out the door. You know, I'm really, I really do encourage them to have fun and be safe on their trips. And I love to have people come back in and say, oh, you know, I caught caught this fish. Or in fact, I had a, an older gentleman come in this afternoon that just got back from Indiana. They caught some beautiful smallmouth on the trip that he just took and was showing me some photos and he's like, you need to fish with this guy, Leslie, you love him, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And that's a lot of fun. That To me, that brings me great joy, you know, and having them come full circle, come back into the store and say, hey, look what I did. You know, that's really cool. Those relationships are so important because you're not selling something to somebody that you got a relationship with. You know, somebody that checks in, says, I've, I've been on this water. Where have you been? It's more of, um, it's like talking with an old friend. And I think, uh, that's the best way to do sales in my book. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm as much of a, a smallmouth junkie as I am a trout junkie. I mean, we have such great smallmouth bass water down here. You know, it's amazing. And if the trout, if our trout, our trout waters are, are tail waters, and if, if they're blowing out the rivers generating, you know, I can always hit a warm water river and catch smallmouth from basically from March to end of October. You know, our, our warm water season's pretty long down here and uh and that's that's a lot of fun too. And we're we're really blessed to be in such a great spot. I mean, you, you know, you think Memphis, you can't really go fly fishing in the Mississippi. I mean you could on some of the little backwaters, but I'm three to four hours from some of the best trout fishing in the country in Arkansas with the White River, the Norfolk River, the Little Red River, um, and then Going towards East Tennessee, I've got the Buffalo River, the Harpeth, the Duck. Those are all warm water rivers that are loaded with smallmouth bass, Kentucky bass, big panfish. I mean, it's just amazing. We're in a great area here. And people, a lot of people don't even realize that. There's a lot of hidden gems out there. And you know what? You're, you're striking a chord mm-hmm. with me as far as the smallmouth fishing because I've got some really excellent smallmouth fishing where I'm at in, in British Columbia. And I'll tell you what, it's an underutilized um, fish. I mean, everyone loves to catch a, a rainbow or uh, a cutthroat on a dry fly, but there's something about those smallies that, that they fight pound for pound as, as good as just about anything. Oh, they're, they're, they're vicious. They really are. And they're so much fun to catch. You know, that's that's one of my great things to do in the spring and summer. Hop on my kayak and float some of the smaller creeks and just wail on the smallmouth all day. That's that's awesome. So are you looking mostly in the boulder runs for smallies? or were, I mean, that's kind of always up where I'm at. It's basically largemouth in wood and, and, and smallies in rocks. And I assume that's pretty pretty universal. Um, yeah, we have... The, some of the smaller creeks and rivers we have around this area, you'll have what I call chunk rock, which isn't boulders. It's like just big hunks of rock. But also sometimes they'll be in the sandy bottoms and, you know, tucked up under big long, log jams and stuff like that. And I'll be the first person to tell you, I'm a chicken. I am terrified of snakes. And we have some nasty, nasty venomous snakes down here. 
but I will I will forego that to to smallmouth fish around stumps and and down logs and stuff like that and and just try to pull a big fish out from under there. Um, you guys are lucky up north. Y'all don't have have the the bad venomous snakes like we do. But there, you got a couple around here. But uh, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, that's. I mean, the last thing you want to <laughs> do is, is step into a rattlesnake den trying to chase some smallies. And, and let's face it, a lot of times when you're near water, you get in those uh, kind of less traveled corridors uh that's where you can find some 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 snakes for sure absolutely yeah we have some nasty ones down here (laughs) fair enough i'd like to ask you to think leslie your ideal day on the water you just you just might have touched on it maybe it's smallies maybe it's browns maybe it's rainbows i don't know what if you could describe and paint a picture of your perfect day what does that look like oh gosh um that's that's kind of a kind of a hard one for me I guess my perfect day on the water would be a river where I could catch both. And I've actually had that experience a few times. Um, There's a couple of rivers not far from me that have both smallmouth and trout. Mm -hmm. So one of those is called the 11 Point River. It's in southern Missouri. And the upper end of it is, um, is smallmouth and panfish. And then the lower end of it is a blue ribbon trout stream and I have fished it several times and caught, you know, nice 15, 16 inch smallmouth. And then as we get further down river, I start catching trout, you know, and I'm catching 16, 18 inch trout on there as well. And to me, that's the perfect day because that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. Is that, is a lot of that top water? Um, no, it's, it's almost exclusively subsurface kind of stuff, like right off the bottom. Hmm. So are you fishing yeah. uh, with strike indicators for the most part or, or uh, weighted nymphs? What does that look like? Uh, we were fishing, yeah, mostly strike indicator type fishing with um, like like big marabou jigs and, and big woolly buggers mm-hmm. um, and some other smaller streamers like some minnow patterns and crawfish patterns, that type of thing. But it was uh, it was right off the bottom. Right on. If you're in Memphis, which which you are, uh, your favorite place to talk fly fishing. Now, this might be a little different for you because you're actually working in a store that I'm sure you get your fix. But I always like to ask this question, like, is there a coffee shop or a local watering hole or a brewery or um, somewhere you go to, to get your fix? Yeah, absolutely. There's a actually a good friend of mine is part owner in a, a brewery here in town called High Cotton Brewing. Mm-hmm. And he's an avid fly fisher, and they're very fly fisher friendly at High Cotton. They make uh, they make great beer, um, and he actually hosted the fly fishing film tour for us uh, earlier this year. And it's just a really cool brewery. It's a great place. They have awesome food next door. It's kind of a good hangout for us. Yeah, just trying to get a a, a flavor like a taste for uh, Memphis. Never been there. It's on the list for sure. Um, I'm going to ask you a few kind of rapid-fire questions. Elvis Presley or Johnny Cash? Oh, wow. Um, That's a hard one. I'm going to say Elvis. Dry flies or nymph? Nymphs. Titans or tigers? Tigers. I knew it. Helios (laughs) Helios 2 or Helios 3? Ooh. I have both. That's a, I, have, I have an H1, too. That's kind of bad. Um, I'm going to say H3. Smallmouth or browns? Smallmouth. Yeah, cool. Love it. 
I've got I got a Helios three too, and I tell you what, it's, I love talking to anybody that knows the Orvis product because uh, they make nothing but but top top shelf stuff. Tell me what that's like working for a company like Orvis, and uh, kind of take us through your typical day in the shop. Okay, um, well, it, Orvis is great. Um, I actually got to go to the the rod manufacturing shop back in March when I went to Vermont for the fishing managers conference. And that was really neat to, to actually watch all the hands-on work that goes into these rods. I'm probably mistaken on my numbers, but I want to say something like 85 different people touch each rod before they're completed. Hmm. I think that's, that's correct somewhere in there. But um, I'm, I'm really proud to work for Orvis. We've got a great reputation. We've been around a long time. Um, we have, you know, really good quality gear, and you know, we've got got a great reputation as far as, you know, rod repair and that kind of thing. Um, you know, like I said, I've I've got an H1 and H2 and an H3. Hmm. Um, my H1 was actually a tenth wedding anniversary gift. <laughs> you don't hear that every day. No, you really don't, and it's kind of a cool story. Um, I had a pair of, of diamond stud earrings, small ones, um, and I, I lost one of them. And Chris was like, well, you know, you, I'm going to give you your choice for our 10th wedding anniversary. You can either have a new pair of earrings or you can have a new fly rod. And I looked at him and I said, honestly, I'll take a rod. And that's what I got. I got a got an H1 and a four-weight, and I absolutely love that rod. It's a great little mint rod. Hmm. That's the one thing I, I really notice about the the newer Helios, just the, how fast and how light. Like I, I don't, I, I've never casted anything as as light as it uh, as the Helios three. And I'll tell you, it's just a dream to cast, especially for somebody that has really bad habits like myself. <laughs> you know what? It, it <laughs> yeah, makes the they. Day. Go ahead. That I was going to say they load really easily and just cast so easily. It's you know it's very effortless. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful stick for sure. This is kind of a philosophical question, but I, I, I always intrigues me where we go with this. If there's something you could change about our pastime, Leslie, is there anything you'd like to see us do better or differently? Hmm. I think fly fishing as a pastime is, is just such a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's something you can do your entire life. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing I would probably change about it you know, it's just more education as far as catch and release because for us, I feel like that's kind of a big deal. Not so much with the trout because I think we do a really great job of educating people on catch and release as far as trout go. But on our warm water species, I think we we could do so much better. Um, the smallmouth particularly in my area are not stocked. They're native fish. and encouraging people to release those fish is something that I think people overlook and a lot of small fisheries can lose good breeding stock if people keep big trophy fish to have them mounted or whatever and that's something that kind of breaks my heart that I would like to see us do a better job at yeah that's that's well said for sure I mean that's that DNA being passed forward from these these big, you know, you catch a large fish, and that used to be back in the day. That's the first thing you thought of is what's this going to look like on the wall. But now it's a different mentality, right? I mean, and that's what I think 
the sport has really changed a lot in my mind in the last mm-hmm. 10 years. Maybe speak to that a little bit. Like, what are you seeing? I, and I know there's the 50-50 on the water. There seems to be a lot of younger people getting into the sport. What are you seeing in the shop on a day-to-day? Like, how is how is things changing, or, or are they? Um, I think not only are a lot more women fly fishing, but I think it's it's a it's a family thing as well. I see a lot of families bringing their their kids into the shop and and getting them first rod or taking that first fly fishing 101 class with us, which I think is awesome. I honestly I wish I'd started fly fishing 20 years before I did, but um, I think that's a great thing. And I think now we have such good quality gear. You know, when I when I started fly fishing about 20 years ago, there weren't a whole lot of women's waders and boots. So I'd have to get like a men's small or medium and just try to make it kind of fit. Same with, um, you know, like wading jackets and gloves and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's really neat to see the fact that the industry is, is going, well, you know, hey, we can't make cookie cutter women's things just like the men's because they're not gonna, they're not shaped the same. They're not going to fit the same way. I think that's a really cool advancement that we've made and, and it's just getting better all the time. You know, just the gear itself, like you were saying, the, you know, the rods are lighter. You know, everything is, is more technical, and, and I think it's more durable, too, which is another great thing. Yeah, the technology always boggles my mind, but I, I think of something as simple as time flies. Think, go back 20, 30 years. I think when I was tying, when I was a younger person, there wasn't a lot of materials out there. I mean, you could easily basically own everything that's in a shop and now, now I see everything comes in UV and, and all of these, uh, some of these synthetic materials now are so lifelike and just, just a joy to work with. Right. I, I agree with you. And, you know, the, the fact that we don't have to use, you know, so many animals, I think is a good thing as well. Um, you know, the, the synthetic hairs and things are great. And it's almost kind of hard to keep up with all the advancements. I, you know, I find myself really reading a lot and trying to to see all the latest and greatest items that are coming out. You really have to kind of stay on top of mm-hmm. it. Well, it, it is very visceral, right? It's always changing. And I think um, working in a retail environment like you do with Orvis in, in Memphis, Tennessee, that's, you've got to be, you got to be fluid with stuff because it's changing very quickly. Like even the, the vices, the rods, and like you said, the gear, I look at, I look at waders now and think what I used to wear, those old thick neoprene waders that were super hot and they didn't breathe. And, uh, you know, it's, it, you got to sometimes look back to see where we came from to appreciate what we have. Oh, right. I totally agree with you, you know, and just like the, like the vice I started on was just a little cheap $50 vice. And, and I was at the point where I tied flies for probably four or five months and I was like, okay, I'm going to move up and, and get something, you know, a little bit better. And I, I jumped up and bought a Renzetti and I've been tying on that thing for 20 years now and I love it. It goes everywhere with me. Awesome. That's what I, I'm you sitting know, in my tying, yeah. tying room right now and I, I have a Renzetti too, but I wish I would have known sooner how important the vice was i always thought in my mind i can tie better flies if i just practice 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 but you need the right tools for the job and it took me a long time to realize that to be honest mm-hmm. yeah and you know i was one of those people where i just didn't want the hassle of having to 
to clamp my vice on the table. And, you know, if we were staying at somebody's cabin, I didn't want to go, oh, you know, am I going to scratch their table up and this kind of thing. And, you know, the clamp vices are, are great, but pedestal vices are so much easier to carry. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to have a certain surface to put them on and that kind of thing. And, you know, it just kind of balanced itself out. And, and, you know, sometimes those creature comforts are worth spending a little bit of extra money on. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your tying habits. So do you, do you tie Leslie mostly in the off season, like in the, say in the winter months or are you, are you tying before trips? What does that look like? Um, I, I think I tie pretty much year round. Um, I, I usually try to sit down and tie before trips, but if I know there's something that I'm running out of, I'll try to stay ahead of that or, if I see a really cool new pattern online or on, you know, on YouTube or something like that. And I, I think, wow, you know, I think I'm going to tie some of those up. Those might come in handy. I'll sit down and tie a few and, and I always kind of have a, a, a little pile of tying stuff by my couch, which I know drives my husband nuts, but, um, I always have a little like laptop bench beside the couch and I'll sit and tie a few flies while I watch TV or listen to a football game or something like that. For me, it's also a form of stress relief because I can just kind of get into my tying mode and, and, and kind of forget about everything else and recharge my batteries and think about my next fishing trip. And to me, it's a huge stress reliever. So it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. I've actually had um, a couple of people on the, on the podcast that talked about tying as a form of, of therapy and, and fly fishing in mm-hmm. general. I mean, let's face it, there's so many organizations now that use it, um, I mean, let's face it, we're surrounded by nature, we're in beautiful places doing something we love to do, and there's so much to learn that it, for me, you just, you, the attention to the details, you know, just looking at the little things like the little caddis coming off at your feet or things that you don't always notice when you're walking somewhere, I, I find I pay attention to details when I'm fly fishing more so than right. anything else. I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, a lot of times, the fish are a bonus, right? I mean, you're not going to catch fish every time you go out unless you're just super, super lucky or super, super great. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes if the fish are being tight-lipped and won't bite, I can bird watch. I can watch deer coming down to the river or squirrels playing in the leaves or just whatever. And it's so calming. And just listening to the water, I mean, it's an amazing thing. I mean, how could you not just love being out there? Like I said, the fish are a bonus. Yeah. I totally agree. So of all your time on the water over the past uh, few years, I, I like to ask this question as far as fish stories, and, and this comes up a lot. Anything weird or wonderful happened to you out there that uh, comes to mind? Sometimes it takes a while to think of something, but have you had anything crazy happen to you out there on the water? Um. Well, this is this has been a few years ago, but and I was actually fishing with with my mentor who has has passed away. But um, we were fishing the Little Red River over in Arkansas, and we were we'd waded out fairly far out in the water, and I kept seeing something moving in the water, and immediately I think snake, I'm going to die. Um, but as it turns out, there was an otter not too far from us, and he he actually swam within four or five feet of me and my friend Dan, who was also a great, great mentor and and just a wonderful person. He taught me how to tie my first fly, loved him to death. He, uh, 
he said, girl, you better watch it. That otter's going to swim by us and make a wake, and he might drown both of us. We just both laughed. It was just really funny. I'd never been that close to an otter, but but it was just kind of a funny moment. I'll never forget it. Dan was a, a wonderful man. I loved him dearly. Can you can you talk about that? I, that's something else I like to talk influences. Who's been an influence? You just mentioned your late friend Dan, who's been a who sounds like uh-huh. a a big mentor when it comes to fly fishing and and a lot of times I assume life. But w- t- tell me about Dan. What what's his last name and and, and what was his story? Um, his name was Dan Barry. He he taught me how to fly fish. He taught me casting or tried to teach me casting, and he taught me how to tie my first fly. And I caught my first trout on a fly rod on the fly that I tied at his house. Wow. And I always told him he ruined my life when he taught me how to tie my first fly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but he was great. He he and his brother had a guide service for a long time. He was a commercial tire for years. Um, probably one of the best casting instructors I've ever seen. Just a, Just a really great guy. You know, he had a big smile. I always chewed on a cigar, you know, he was just a, a larger than life person. And I really did love him. Mm-hmm. It amazes me how many characters there are in our sport and, and how important it is to have those mentors, those people that, that spend time and, and kind of, uh, we've all had them. And it, uh, I, I love talking to influences. Is, is there any, anybody else you've learned from or anything else you want to talk about? Oh, wow. There's, there are so many people that have taught me things. Um, I have another dear, dear friend. His name is John Gully. He's a retired guy that lives over in Mountain Home, Arkansas. And I spend a lot of time with John and his wife, Kathy. We kayak together. We fish together. We eat and drink and stay at their house. And they're just they're just great folks. But John has taught me a lot just about about warm water fishing, about bait fish and about how bass react and how the bait react to temperature changes and and different seasons and he's just an amazing guy he's got so much knowledge um he guided for about 40 years and he's kind of semi-retired now he he just guides a few weeks a year now but he's just a, a great great person um wanda taylor who's a a female guide who lives in North Georgia. I took some casting lessons from Wanda when I first started fly fishing, and and now I see her maybe every four or five years. But she's a an amazing lady. She's been guiding for a long time. She's a wonderful casting instructor. She's one of the handful of of lady master casting instructors that are certified through the FFI. Mm-hmm. She's just really cool. Um, you know, I met Lefty Cray and had the privilege to hang out with him for a few times and, and eat dinner with him and, and hear him crack a lot of his one-liners. Um, <laughs> Bob Clouser, I got to hang out with him a few times. Bob's really cool. really like Bob a lot. And he's going to be back in Memphis next year with our fly club again for some presentations. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him. Um, you know, I, there are so many people who have helped me along the way. Mm-hmm. that that I just really enjoy, you know, and I'm friends with them on Facebook and Instagram. Right. But, um, you know, I think it's cool to, to hang out with people that can teach you things and really pay attention to what they're telling you. And so you can pass it on to other people. You know, I, I think um, one of the cool things about my job is the teaching aspect. 
you know, I teach fly fishing 101 classes for about six months a year. And then I teach fly tying 101 classes for about six or eight weeks. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy passing it on. I love teaching kids. I love teaching fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, couples. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just really fun to be able to pass the sport on to other people. I think that's important. Absolutely. I, I'm always curious how that how that looks. Like, so when you start fly fishing 101, for instance, um, where do you start? Do you start casting or do you kind of start... Take us through that process a little bit. I'm I'm really curious where that starts. Well, um, those classes were developed by a couple of the regional managers at Orvis, and we've kind of got got it down to a science. It's pretty. It's a pretty straightforward class. We we actually start with the casting portion. Mm-hmm. We go outside, and my my store is in the middle of a shopping center in the middle of town. So we basically cast on asphalt, which I know isn't the best thing to do but it's kind of what works best for our, our physical location. So we go out, we teach a pickup, lay down cast. We talk a little bit about hook sets and that kind of thing. And, and we have Velcro fish for the people to cast to. And, and I'll, I'll go and I'll grab some of them's line and I'll run and jump around. I'm like, okay, I'm your fish. You got to land me, you know, <laughs> and, and really try to try to be animated and funny. And, and then we go inside kind of, decompress after the casting and I teach people how to put their gear together basically how to you know the parts of the rod the parts of the reel how to stick it together how to string it up you know how to put a leader on and then I teach a couple of knots teach a little bit about basic flies and how to pick out patterns for where you're fishing a little bit about weighting safety and that's pretty much it that's that's the beginner class cool and it's you know, it's very basic. It's just set up for people to to learn a little bit and for them to, you know, to get so excited that they want to come to the 201. And the 201 is kind of a cool class because we just made it one of the parks here in town and we basically brim and bass fish. So they get to practice their cast. They get to practice landing a fish, taking the hook out of its mouth and, and that kind of thing. And it's pretty neat. It's it's. I've actually had some people catch their first fish ever on their fly rods, and that's pretty special. How many? So there's 101, 201. Is there anything after that? Um, after that, we do 301 classes, and those are there's a cost involved with those, and it's usually a day on one of the trout rivers where we basically take them out, and help them get out in the water, and and set up with their fly rig and and try to help them catch some trout mm-hmm. you know teach a little bit of entomology a little bit about reading the water and the currents and right you know it's a little bit more advanced yeah that entomology base is so uh is so important but it i i love the way you guys have it set up because that makes a lot of sense because once you, you need to throw you need to know how to throw the line first and and the entomology can come with time and, and do you have a lot of people that take your classes that say hey i want to tie my own flies and then and then that probably morphs into something else we do and actually that's it's kind of funny because most of the people that come and take the fly tying classes have have taken the 101 and 201 classes and some of them have taken 301s as well they they'll get out there and fish a little bit and go hey this is fun it's really cool and i think i'd like to tie my own flies too so you know it kind of kind of all goes hand in hand yeah completes the this the circle it's it's good stuff 
just want to thank you for taking your time. We've been chatting today with Leslie Heron Allen out of Memphis, Tennessee. Leslie works as a fly fishing manager at Orvis, avid fly fisher, fly tire, kayaker. Keep up your good work uh, in Memphis with Orvis, and, and thanks so much for sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Thank you.